This episode is brought to you by Carvana. Let's say you need a new car. Well, a new used car. Uh, now this is my groove car. A you car. Now, what if you could seal the deal and order it to your door 100% online? Buyer's remorse, no such thing. Take a week to love it or return it. Sound good? Carvana, they'll drive you happy. Availability may vary by market. Visit Carvana.com or download the app. again and welcome back. I'm glad you could join us. I know our door is a little bit hard to find, nestled between the intergalactic travel agency and the microbiome black market, but here you are. Got a question about tomorrow? Well, you are in the right place. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood futurology shop, where you can get the answers to tomorrow's questions today. On today's trip to and from the future, we are considering questions about food. So to do that, I called up Soleil Ho, food critic at the San Francisco Chronicle, host of the podcast Extra Spicy, and founder of another podcast called Racist Sandwich. Okay, Soleil, welcome to Advice for and from the Future. Are you ready to give some advice? I am rip-raring. I'm so excited. (laughs) Okay. So I actually want to have you listen to this question, like the full question, the official question. Um, So I'm going to send you – I'm just going to text you this audio file. Let's see if this works. I got it. Okay. You got it? Yes. I'm listening. Hey, Rose. This is Kim here. I'm sending this memo from Reus, Spain. Ooh, Spain. And my question is, do you think bugs are really the food of the future? Um, I've been thinking a lot about food security recently and thinking about um, is it possible to make sure that my community, my family, or my area, my town has food for the future? And um, I've learned about um, bug farming and people are saying that bugs are the food of the future because it's really sustainable compared to other sources of protein or at least animal protein and yeah so I'm not I'm thinking actually of maybe setting up some kind of bug farm um, something like that but not really sure that it's that um, it's really let's say the food of the future I mean maybe couldn't we just eat um, chickpeas or maybe how about chickens um, and also because bugs need a lot of electricity to grow them usually and I'm not really sure that's um, that's really that resilient in a in a maybe in a climate changed um, future or in a future where maybe electricity might be very expensive um, so yeah um, that's kind of my, my question is yeah is are bugs really the food of the future so thanks a lot um, bye-bye. That's such a good question. <laughs> I love that. Okay. So maybe let's start with like the simple but probably hardest question, which is, are bugs the food of the future? No. Why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you want me to elaborate now? <laughs> you say that as a bug bug lover. I am a bug lover. Right. Um, 
But the important distinction is I love bugs because of their present and their past, not because of their future, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think insects, edible insects have been part of foodways around the world for a very, very long time, right? Like probably before we were truly like developed as civilizations, as like, you know, human civilizations, like people were hunting and gathering and foraging insects. Um, And, you know, it makes sense, right? Like insects have protein as the caller describes, and it's a lot less um, dangerous to to forage for insects than to hunt like a a wild bison. Um, So of course, many people did that too. So they continue to persist as a food source in many places, right? Thailand, Mexico, um, Botswana. There's so many um, cultures and contexts in which edible insects have never gone away and they've never been a trend. They just have been just as, you know, um, gosh, dairy has been a part of Northern European cuisine for a very, very long time. And wheat has been part of like Levant, Levantine cuisine for a very long time. The whole reason why the caller even thought to associate insects with the food of the future as this concept all stems back. Like all of this, like all of the the cricket chip businesses, all of the powdered cricket flour, all of the um, kind of innovations, the the edible insect festivals that have happened in the U.S. They come from this one paper that was published in 2013. Right? It's called Edible Insects, Future Prospects for Food and Feed Security. And that was by the UN's like food division, right? The FAO. And it was so it was so um, I think mind-blowing for a lot of people in the food space, right? Because one of its arguments was that, you know, insects could be a really great way to 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 fix a lot of the problems presented by food insecurity in the world, right? Because they're more efficient, as, as the caller says, because they take up, you know, you could have a lot more individuals, individual crickets in one space than you could have individual cows, you know? Um, they don't excrete, like, methane when they fart. I don't even know if bugs <laughs> fart. I don't think they do. Isn't there a book, but, like, does it fart? You know, like, I feel like that. I feel like we need to consult that expert uh, on this. <laughs> there should be. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Hello. It's me again. Just popping in for a second to say that I did look this up and some bugs do fart. They have anuses and digestive tracts and some amount of digestive gas comes out of their tiny little butts. That goes in the butt bank. One study from 1994 looked at 113 arthropod species to see if they produced digestive gas, aka farts. And they found that 45 species out of that 113 made enough farty gas to measure. And this one really blows my mind. Okay, termites are one of the bugs that farts. And in fact, termite farts, like our farts, contain methane. There are, as you probably know, a lot of termites in the world. And all those little toots add up. According to one study, termites produce 10 million tons of methane every year. 10 million! They're still nowhere close to cows, who globally produce hundreds of millions of metric tons of methane every year, but they still do make some toots. Okay, anyway, back to Soleil. Insects aren't responsible for the deforestation of the Amazon. Um, There's a lot of stuff going on, like layered sort of arguments for why edible insects are better. But what I will say is that 
you know, in the years since this paper was published, you know, there have been a lot of like anthropologists, sociologists, um, entomologists who have dug into this question of whether or not bugs are the future of food. And they have found largely, and some of the original authors too of this paper have found that the issue isn't whether or not we're eating bugs or cows or chickens, but it's a, it's a question of distribution, which, um, you know, because if you're changing the input, right, um, into crickets or water beetles or whatever, if you're still persisting in the sort of like, um, in the sort of social organization that will mean that some people get less food than other people and some people have housing and other people don't, food insecurity will still persist, right? Like, it doesn't matter if there are crickets in the grocery stores if there are neighborhoods that don't have grocery stores. The end. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. I was going to ask you, like, I wanted to sort of talk about that paper and, like, how all of a sudden, because it does feel like seemingly overnight, all of a sudden everybody in sort of, like, the Western, especially in America and, and apparently in Spain, you know, like, are suddenly talking about bugs, eating bugs, bugs are the future. And it was like, where did this come from? Like, how does this become the trend? And, you know, you get all these, right, you said like cricket flower companies and cricket chip companies and candies with little bugs inside of them. Right. Yeah. Um, You know, I think there are some cultures, as the paper argues, there are many cultures, I think the majority of cultures in the world that consume insects as sort of daily whatever, right? Um, And at the same time, there are some really influential cultures, a minority of the world, that doesn't eat insects and actually has a very strong distaste towards edible insects as a concept. Um, and so the interesting thing that has happened is that the people who tend to be from places that are experiencing disproportionate food insecurity, right, people in Africa, people in certain regions of Asia, um, they already eat bugs, right? I guess the question is, like, why are we, we're trying so hard to convince these, like, what we sometimes consider to be the first world, right? Like, these industrialized countries, the people in, you know, rapidly growing economies, we're trying to convince them to eat bugs. But why? Because they already have enough food, largely. (laughs) So it doesn't make any sense. Um, And that's why you have all of these premium products that are marketed toward people in what we consider to be the West, lollipops and cricket power bars and that sort of thing for people who are largely affluent um, relative to the rest of the world. It's a really interesting and I think wrong answer to a very legitimate question of how we feed an expanding global population. Yeah. And there seemed to be, you know, in my research on this, which is not nearly as deep as yours, I feel like I've seen two sort of very distinct groups of people who are excited about eating bugs. And one group is the group that is, you know, these cricket flower, like food of the future, sustainability, you know, this is the way, this is what we're going to do, kind of just discovered this idea, people. And then there are the folks who are excited about bugs because they're like a heritage food and they kind of want to go back to some of these things that were nourishing to their cultures sort of at all levels. And those two groups do not seem to be in conversation with one another very frequently. Is that fair to say? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, the kind of people who are writing these papers are largely from European or American universities, right? They're researchers who are from these these populations that don't really eat the insects and don't have like a really deep um, cultural memory of eating insects. It's such a disconnect between the people who already do it. Like they are rarely, the latter camp are rarely asked about their experiences. (laughs) Um, And they're more treated as a sort of like anthropological kind of curiosity 
generally. Insects are another thing that can and will be and have been gentrified. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because there's been this, I think, a big conversation for many years, but I think has ramped up a little bit more recently in the food world around cultural appropriation and food and sort of like what does that mean and how does that manifest in the food space? And I'm curious what you think about in terms of these push, the push to eat insects, like how does that factor into the conversation here? I mean, I think it's once you identify cultural appropriation as a mechanism, right, as a process of assimilating a otherized food into the mainstream, it's pretty easy to see how that's happened with insects. The reason why cultural appropriation matters is because of the way it exacerbates the existing racial wealth gap, right, between whites and non-whites. That's a huge gap in the United States. And when you look at the leadership of who owns these edible insect companies, right? These startups, who is, who is getting all this VC funding for these projects? It is largely not people who are from the cultures that have been eating insects for a very long time. Um, that's sort of the, uh, the people who came into this as a business opportunity once that paper was published. You know, they saw this coming, or at least they saw this trend. And so they're trying to engineer it and make it happen. And like, get ahead of it with the patents and and the automated cricket farms and all of this stuff in order to profit, you know, and <laughs> insects, if you're going, you know, ugh, there's so many things I could say. I'm just like so mad right now. Um, if you're Channeled. going to farm insects, they do not, one, they have a very different environmental impact as, um, because the original paper was talking about foraged insects, right? Like in Oaxaca, People don't grow chapulinas or ant larvae. They gather it or they, they facilitate it through like permaculture in agave or like, you know, other sorts of natural plants <laughs> that exist on ranches. And they kind of are a seasonal thing, like winged termites in India, for instance, like they come in during monsoon season and then you catch them. You don't farm them, right? So, but, but once you start trying to industrialize insects and make this these products to scale, the environmental impacts, the nutritional impacts, all the things that are um, bandied by this paper as being really significant benefits to an edible insect culture are completely, <laughs> like, they're just so undermined by those practices. Um, so it's a very funny American impulse to have to try to industrialize everything. Like, that's not the solution, actually. <laughs> it's a distribution of resources. That's the solution. Um, and the redistribution of wealth. But, you know, I think when you think about edible insects and you think about power together, um, they mirror a lot of these conversations about culture appropriation and food. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the conversation around vegetarianism, veganism in the U.S., where, you know, there are all of these papers that identify meat eating as a large input into the climate change system. And the recommendation is like, hey, like maybe eat less meat. And the reaction has been not just to eat less meat, but to like get into a lab and engineer fake meat to be as close as possible to real meat in this like very complicated and resource intensive way. And then be like, see, we're not eating meat. And it's like, I feel like you've missed a step here. <laughs> like, Right. Yeah. I think there's a very um, distinct cynicism to this too, because the selling of vegetarian or vegan meats or edible insects, right, is so based on these bigger picture things, right? They're based on climate change. They're based on environmental impact. They're based on nutrition. Whereas, you know, a lot of vegetarians 
culturally, a lot of people who eat edible insects eat them because they like the food. They like how it tastes. And they're so rarely marketed because of how good they taste. And like, if you're going to try to convert people to a diet or a different way of eating, you know, anyone with a kid can tell you, right? Like, you don't sell it to them based on how good it is for them. (laughs) You tell them, oh, this is delicious. And then they'll get interested. I also wanted to ask a little bit, too, about, you know, the dynamic sort of like intra-culture dynamics. You sent me this amazing piece by Janavi Upaletti in Vice about the roasted winged termites, um, the monsoon snack. And in that piece, they talk about the sort of like caste system and sort of the ways in which even within a culture, there are some places in which, you know, eating bugs is seen as low class and, you know, is sort of considered disgusting by those who are sort of high society. And so there's like also an even, even when you aren't talking about like sort of like the quote unquote West white sort of colonial powers taking things and sort of co-opting them and trying to industrialize them, even within some of these cultures, there are interesting dynamics at play here when it comes to the conversations around eating insects. For sure. Yeah. I loved that piece also because you rarely hear from people who are considered to be lower caste in India talking about Indian cuisines. So that in itself is awesome. Um, But yeah, it's, as you see, kind of There are these really interesting patterns of dietary change as people and uh, nations and communities become more affluent or, you know, as as their income rises, they start to eat kind of the same, which I find really fascinating, right? Like eating seasonally for a long time, that was sort of a poor people's thing. That was a farmer's like way of eating or eating like fresh food was sort of a, you know, really only farmers got that. Um, Many people who were more affluent would eat like preserved foods or spices that have been imported um, and preserved in a certain way, you know, like meats that were preserved in honey, for instance, or like pickles, like that sort of thing. And as you kind of see, especially in the U.S., right, like people assimilate as immigrants, like they eat more meat, for instance, you know, um, there have been countless examples of immigrants writing back home and saying, like, I eat meat every day as opposed to once a month. This is amazing. I love America. You know, that's a part of what we do here. And you've seen it in the work of, um, gosh, Luz Calvo and Catriona Esquivel, who wrote Decolonize Your Diet, about the kind of the Hispanic paradox, where a lot of Latinx people who immigrated to the United States, um, they tended to be healthier than their descendants who, you know, grew up here because of the diet, because of the way their diets shifted more towards processed foods and meat, red meat especially. It's really interesting. And so you see this with insects as well, where as people move into cities, for instance, and, and they urbanize, you see this in Thailand, they are more separate from that sort of indigenous food culture. You know, they want to eat like everyone else. They want to fit in. And so they're not going to eat bugs and look like a fucking bumpkin, right? Um, You see this in Japan in the mountains where they eat wasps and um, other insects, grasshoppers, um, hornets, where a lot of the people who maintain these practices are older. They're getting older, they're aging up, and their kids are just leaving home, going to the city and completely just like not, (laughs) they're just completely not participating in that practice anymore. So, you know, they eat fish, they eat meat, whatever. They eat hamburgers. I also, it's sort of interesting, too, to think about, like, the power that food has as a sort of a cudgel, right, to be used against people or to bring people in or or whatever it is. Um, And the ways in which the 
the versions of the bug eating, you know, startups and stuff, you know, they're always converting that food into an item that is sort of more familiar, like a power bar or a candy or something like that. Like they're not replicating the dishes that, that these cultures make. They're just sort of like making it into something that you startup guy would already eat. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like bug soylent um, or like protein powder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If someone's listening to this and they're like, a, you know, you know, let's say that they live in Berkeley and they go to the store and they see these items, these sort of insect items at the store, whether that's cricket flour or, you know, bars that are made with it or whatever. I mean, should they buy those things or do you think it's not worth to not worth it to like participate in that sort of mini economy? I mean, buy it if you like it. You know, I really like them. So I will buy edible insects if I see them um, at, you know, because like they have them at, um, gosh, the Oakland A's stadium, for instance. <laughs> you know, they sell them at uh, the Mariners stadium in Seattle, too. If if you find them tasty, definitely don't don't buy them because it's like some obligation thing and they're just going to collect dust in your cupboard, you know, just like any other food. Um but the thing for me that's really important is also thinking about sourcing and thinking about who owns these companies. So, you know, there's there's a very small minority of edible insect companies that are actually owned by people who have a cultural stake in the practice. Um, in the Bay Area, that includes Don Baguito, which is owned by a, a Latina and probably one of the very – God, I don't even know if I can name any others that are – that are owned by Latinx people. So, you know, like that sort of thing, I think is really important to think about when we think about, again, like the, the problem with cultural appropriation is a problem that has to do with money, right? And consolidating money in the hands of people who really don't need, <laughs> like don't have a cultural stake in these products or these items or these food ways. So just consider that. Read the label. Yeah. I feel like that's always a good recommendation. Read the label. Like think about who you're buying things from, whether it's bugs or not bugs. Right. I want to zoom out a little bit from the specifics of kind of like insects and and eating them in different places and in different forms. And I want to ask a little bit about like, and maybe this is like a, a mealy question, but like, what does it mean to be a food of the future? That's a really good question. Um, I think the way I perceive it is this is the food that will solve the problems that we're dealing with right now. You know, um, whether we're talking about automation or food scarcity or um, nutrition or global warming, I think that generally speaking, the food of the future is this very optimistic idea of when we eat this, this problem will be gone. You know, um, this is how we will be eating or should be eating in order to continue to exist and <laughs> persist into the future. Um, alternately, it could also be a pessimistic kind of glimpse of this is what we'll be resorting to in the future, <laughs> too, um, depending on who you ask. But I think generally speaking, um, the food of the future either solves a problem or is the result of a problem that we just have not been able to deal with in the present. Yeah. And and why is it that it seems to me, at least, that like people want this food of the future or even like the system of the future, right? I get a lot of press releases about like vertical farms, right? Or these sort of like really big indoor automated farms that are sort of taking up way less space, these sorts of systems of the future. Why is it that we want them to look and feel 
different or unique or surprising for whatever version of that that means to the person who's considering it. Like, it's not sexy to talk about, like, the future of food is to change these systems in all these, like, subtle ways in which they don't actually look that different. You know, like, why (laughs) is it that we need that? We need it to look, quote unquote, weird. I think it's the same reason why nobody wants to read the farm bill. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like boring shit, but it means so much for so many people, right? Whether you are on food stamps or you're an actual farmer. Um, But it's just so, mm, it's so intimidating and it's so boring and just like full of legalese and process that like the average human being does not want to deal with, right? Um, And when we think about these sort of silver bullets for the problems of today, you want to just buy something that looks cool. And then that would solve the problem. You know, I think that's a very American thing to do. (laughs) Um, We're very much into like the flashy, like instant, okay, something is different now. You want to feel that difference. Otherwise, it doesn't feel real. Um, You know, advocating for UBI doesn't really feel real. It feels kind of fake. And policy stuff always feels kind of fake. And um, I think this overinvestment in product-based solutions also speaks to a failure of one of the government and our society not really impressing upon people the importance of policy and the importance of long-term change and really sticking with fights. Um, and two, it just it speaks to a frustration that people have that these fights don't matter in the end, that policy will never change, that we are so not in control of the greater forces that govern our lives that we might as well just change that tiny sphere that we have access to, um, that we have access to through our income or our means. And like, that's enough. Yeah, it does definitely feel like everybody wants there to be a consumer-based solution because we've been told that like, that's how you change things is by like buying a different product or not buying from somewhere or like picking this, you know, company over that company. And that's like your only vector to be able to sort of have a voice in the system, which is like obviously a very problematic and frustrating thing to sort of feel where it's like, okay, well, I care about the future of food. So I guess if I make this purchase from this company, then I'm doing the right thing as opposed to sort of like collective action or sort of like the much harder, slower, more demoralizing work of organizing in some way. Right. I mean, Again, to go back to the question of food scarcity, insects are not the solution to that because there already is enough food for everyone on this planet. The problem is getting them that food of good quality that is culturally appropriate and that actually, you know, feeds people um, who need it. And, you know, you could just see, like, it's obvious I can order an insane amount of food delivered to my door right now after this call. Um, And many people don't have that option. Like, why is that? So what, like, this is like, obviously, sort of unfair question, given everything we've just talked about, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What is the food of the future? (laughs) That's such an unfair question. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I don't think there is one. I don't think it makes sense to even think about it. Um, And you know, I think we have to be more specific, too, when we ask that question of just, what do you mean when you mean food of the future? Do you mean what are rich people going to be eating or what are the working class going to be eating? Um, what are people going to be eating because they want to and what are they going to be eating because they have to? I think those are all really different questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, it's hard to say what we'll be eating in the year 30, 20. Will there be a planet? I don't know. <laughs> 
I feel confident in saying there will be a planet. Will there be humans? Not so confident. True. Yes. <laughs> will there be food on that planet? Not sure. Yeah. Is there anything that you are excited about, at least, like in terms of, you know, things that are coming, changes that might be coming or new ideas or anything that you are like, oh, actually, that would be great for us to have? <laughs> okay. My um, goofy answer is boba ice cream is an amazing, amazing innovation. Wait, is I'm it very like happy. ice cream with boba in it or is it boba yes. flavored ice cream? Oh, I see. Okay. It's like a milk tea flavored popsicle with boba in it. Whoa. Amazing, right? That is amazing. Um, <laughs> so that is a great food of the present near future that many have enjoyed, including myself. Um, I can't wait for the New York Times to discover it in three years and write about it. <laughs> right. And I think the really interesting thing that I'm seeing right now, as you know, we are speaking during this pandemic and during a time when many people who are in the restaurant, food and beverage industries have found themselves under or unemployed, um, a lot of people who are really talented and know their way around kitchens um, are starting you know, cottage businesses or like gray market businesses where they are grilling chicken for their neighborhood or making tacos on their garage or, you know, selling um, tamales on Facebook. You know, it's 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 really interesting thing where I think we're at this critical mass point where many diners are actually less worried about that, too, as far as safety goes. They're just like, yeah, I'm going to go to this garage and eat a taco. Why not? Um Definitely the health inspector has never been to this place, but that's <laughs> fine, you know. Um, and this, as as many people in cities know, like this has been a a hallmark of city life, right? The tamale lady who goes to the bars at bar clothes and sells them out of a cooler. Um, the street vendors who cook hot dogs wrapped in bacon on the sidewalk. You know, this has been a part of the economy, whether you like it or not, whether it's legal or not, for so long, for so many people who've been shut out of the restaurant industry um, and don't have the money or the credit or the capital to start a legitimate restaurant. And so, like, more and more, I think people are going to enter that economy. And we're going to reach a point where that's just a normal part of life, you know, um, selling, you know, Jamaican beef patties on Instagram is like just a thing that people do now. So I think that's really exciting, actually. The decentralization of food and dining out from restaurants is super exciting. And just it's more and more in the hands of people who have been shut out. And that's always a good thing. We just signed up for a bread CSA that I am incredibly excited about, which is just like a guy, right, who like his bakery's closed <laughs> because it's, you know, a pandemic. And so we're just getting bread. Like he makes bread and we, we, buy, we buy it and it delivers it. And it's amazing. I Bread's my like main food item. It's mostly what I eat all day, every day. So bread and olives, my two food groups. <laughs> <laughs> it's very healthy. Yeah. Do you have a favorite bug dish or, or food item? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yes. <laughs> I, I really like um, chikatanas, actually. And they are kind of a flying ant with a really big sort of, I want to say... Um, Thorax? <laughs> Abdomen? <laughs> it's the butt part. <laughs> nice. It's a really big butt. That goes in the butt bank. And um, they taste like, you know, they they tend to be toasted on a comal. Um, and they're migratory, a lot like flying termites. And they taste kind of like that kind of petrichor-ish 
actually, um, like autumnal rain and you kind of smell the dead leaves and the earth together. I love that. That sounds so good. And so um, sometimes they're put into a sauce or like a salsa. Um, the last time I had them, they were kind of a garnish on top of a fresh tuna tostada. That was like amazing. Oh, that sounds good. Now I want all of these things that you're describing. <laughs> <laughs> they're hard to find up here. So if you ever see them, um, I'll let, let you know. know. Yeah, I will. I'll go. I'll go a, a look in. Oh, right. I have to do the thing where I say that we're ending. Soleil, thank you for coming on the show, talking about bugs and uh, the not future of food. Thanks for having me. Do you have a question about the future? Some conundrum you're facing now or one that you think we might face in the future? Send it in. You can send a voice memo to advice at ffwdpresents.com or call 347-927-1425 and leave a message. And now a quick break. And when we come back, I am going to read some children's literature to you. This episode is brought to you by Peloton. Many of us are already planning our New Year's resolutions, but let's face it, they rarely stick. Well, Peloton's got a gift for you. Get up to $200 off accessories like non-slip grip dumbbells, cycling shoes, heart rate monitors, and more with the purchase of a Peloton bike, bike plus, or tread. Don't wait. Get this offer before it ends on December 25th. Visit OnePeloton.com. All access membership separate. Offer ends December 25th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. When I was a kid, I read a book called My Teacher Flunked the Planet by Bruce Coville. I'm going to go ahead and spoil this book for you because I am pretty sure you're not going to read it since it's the fourth installment of a children's series called My Teacher is an Alien and it was published over 15 years ago. So there's a scene in the book, near the end, where they're in a spaceship with the aliens, evaluating the Earth. And the aliens are listing all of the reasons that the planet, and really the people on it, humans, suck, and why they should be destroyed. One of the ways they illustrate their point is by taking these kids to various places where humans are doing horrible things. The rainforest being destroyed, a literal war zone, and then they go to a refugee camp in Ethiopia where people are starving to death. They see children literally dying right in front of them. It's a super intense scene, which I will spare you the actual details of. But then here is what happens. Here is the part of the book that comes next. Why did you take us there? demanded Susan when we were back on the ship. Her face was pale, her cheeks moist with tears that kept coming, no matter how many times she wiped her eyes. She was as angry as I have ever seen her. Because we want you to explain it to us, said Broxholm. He's an alien, if that's not obvious. Forget explaining it, said Susan. Why don't you do something about it? Broxholm looked at her, his orange eyes glowing in astonishment. What do you mean? Stop it. Fix it. You could feed those people, couldn't you? Why should we? asked Broxholm, genuinely puzzled. Because it's so terrible. Yes, but why should we stop it when you can do it yourselves? But we can't. We just don't have enough food for everyone. Susan's voice began to falter. Do we? Kreblim looked at Broxholm. He nodded and she sent the saucer into the air. Soon we were hovering over a large building, not that far from where we had seen the starving people. 
Kreblim made some adjustments to the control panel, then said, turn around. The center of the floor contained a holographic image, a three-dimensional picture of the warehouse below us. Watch, said Broxholm. Kreblim made another adjustment. The image shifted as the walls of the building vanished, revealing what was inside. It was food. Enormous amounts of food. The aliens spent the next hour taking us around the world, showing us place after place where vast amounts of food were stored. We saw mountains of food that weren't being used, enough for every hungry person on the planet. I don't honestly remember very much about these books. Why is the teacher an alien? Like, what happens between book one and book four? I have no clue. But I very, very distinctly remember this scene. I remember marching into my parents' room and demanding that they tell me if this was true. Was there actually enough food to feed everybody on Earth? The answer was, and remains, yes. Farmers today grow enough food to feed about 10 billion people, a global population that we have not yet reached. And yet, despite that, about 9 million people die every year of hunger. And the United Nations warns that that number could double due to the current pandemic. This is not an easy problem to solve. It is not easy to get food distributed to those who need it. There isn't one big thing that would change this. We couldn't fix it quickly even if we had the political and economic will to do so. But it's not impossible, either. The problem is, the solutions? They aren't sexy. We don't need new food sources. We don't need big labs full of biochemically engineered meat replicas. We don't need bug farms. We need new food thinking, new economic incentives, new political structures. We need to change how we eat, not at a menu level, but long before the price of your sandwich is printed on a piece of paper. There are lots of people who are working on these changes out there, but they rarely get the kind of press that a new cricket farm does. And that's because journalism is often very bad at covering systems. In journalism, a story has to have characters. It has to have drama. It has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There have to be stakes, and there have to be specific actions, and ideally, something that you can take pictures of. At the end of the story, there should be a winner and a loser, clearly defined. And that works in a lot of cases, sports, politics, even science sometimes. This researcher uncovers a new way of understanding fruit flies or giant squid or whatever it is. Cool. But some stories, they don't have those things. In some cases, focusing on the small, concrete stories that have clear outcomes doesn't actually illuminate the bigger issues. There's nothing clickable and surprising about a long slog to fix a broken system. People want stories. They want something that they can see, something they can recount at a party. And when it comes to the future, this issue is compounded even further. People want disruption. They want a wild and unexpected and strange future. Drones and flying cars and talking animals and robots trying to overthrow us. Spaceships and brain implants. People often ask me why we don't feel like we live in the future promised by sci-fi movies. 
the gleaming glass towers, the flying cars, the wearable tech that is visible to all. Constructing a world that the viewer immediately reads as the future requires blatant, flashy changes. We don't want to have to reimagine whole, invisible, or abstract systems or ways of thinking. I admit that sometimes I too suffer from this novelty brain rot. Some of the most interesting futures out there are hard to visualize. They're a rethinking, a shift in worldview. Ruthie Gilmore, the prison abolitionist, says that, quote, abolition requires that we change one thing, everything, end quote. And sometimes when I hear that, I think, okay, but what does that mean? What does it look like? What's the science fiction movie version? Colonialism is not something you can invent your way out of. Neither is climate change or racism or injustice. No device will do that work for you. No ribbon cutting, no unveiling, no big PR announcement. No CEO will add one more thing that saves the world on a dark and dramatic stage. Systems futures are the slow twitch muscles, the big, deep rivers that must be redug by hand, underground, without fanfare or glory. Most people will never notice the river shifting until they arrive at a different destination. And then many of them will forget there was any change in course at all. It simply happened. They were carried along. If we're lucky, the river diggers can trigger earthquakes or seismic slippage. A jolt. A diversion that would have taken decades to carve out by hand. One that spills the beers of our tubers on the river above and forms some unexpected rapids in the water. Some will resent those bumps, but the river moves on, pushing through rock. Journalists will look down from their floats and see movement under the water but it's just too murky to make out. Too hard to see a clear image of what they're doing and why and whether it's even going to work. It's easier to cover the bumper cars around them than to try to make out what's going on beneath. But beneath the surface, those who make the future are holding their breath. Advice for and from the future is written, edited, and performed by me, Rose Eveleth. The theme music is by Also, 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 who has a new album out called The Good Grief, which you can get on Bandcamp. Thanks to Quim Packard for your question and to Salejo for joining us to talk about the future of food. If you want to ask a question for or from the future, you can send a voice memo to advice at ffwdpresents.com. And if you go to ffwdpresents.com, you can learn more about this whole project and about the overall network of Flash Forward Presents, 
There are other shows, there are upcoming experiments, and if you want more about any of those things, you can become a member of the Time Traveler program. Again, go to ffwdpresents.com for more about that. Until next time.